Please take your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We just sang in the closing stanza that the things of this earth are fleeting things, including treasure and even family. The book of Ruth is a reminder that there is a family that is everlasting. His kingdom is forever. And those who are adopted into his family become everlasting co-heirs together with Jesus Christ. That is something Ruth helps remind us of. So in the word of the Lord, Ruth chapter 4, I would invite you to look with me beginning at verse number 7. Ruth 4, 7, the word of the Lord reads, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses this day. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. We have already expressed confession as we sang together. We have confessed the faith that Gary read about as he prepared to pray. And we have put our trust in an anchor that cannot be moved. Our life and therefore our hope is linked, is tied to Christ, our Redeemer. Will he be forever faithful? Our confidence is rooted in him. And that's kind of a story that we are reading today. Can the one who we're hoping in be trusted? Redemption, to be taken from one state of affairs and placed into another, to be redeemed, ransomed, or purchased. Redemption is true where it's right and legal. Today, when I talk about redemption, 
Boaz being a sort of kinsman redeemer, I'm going to talk about the legal transaction. And whenever I think of the legality of redemption, I think about justification. Justification is that language of salvation that says in the courtroom of judgment of a holy God, we have been pronounced forgiven, innocent, justified. Justification cannot operate subjectively. There, there is not a version of real forgiveness that is not substantiated by due process. But let me just introduce that by saying, let's say you have been charged with a horrible crime and you face significant penalty in prison. And one day you get together with your closest loved ones and they say, enough. We just choose not to accept this charge. We declare you innocent today. That should do nothing to provide for you peace of mind. The same is true when it comes to our salvation. We should be careful not to assume that salvation has come to us by bypassing legal process. But true justification comes to us by abiding wholly to the legal process. And we're going to read today an account of legal process. And it's weird legal process. One man's going to hand another man his sandal and court will adjourn. <laughs> yes, culture. The title for my sermon then is Redemption's Transaction. Redemption Transaction. In all of chapter four, the main character becomes this man named Boaz. Boaz is a helpful character to us. I intend to give you two reasons why studying and examining the character of Boaz is good for the Christian church. The first reason, because the character he displays is character we expect of the people of God. Boaz's character is a good example of the character of the people of God. If we look in the chapter and in the chapter preceding, we find that Boaz functions willingly, without hesitation, ready to step in and help Ruth. In chapter 3, verse 18, Boaz functions purposefully. Boaz does not leave things to chance. Let me just paint a small hypothetical. Let's say Boaz wakes up in the night. He sees Ruth laying at his feet and goes, what is going on? You're my redeemer. Oh, okay, well, let's see. Actually, there's another redeemer who's, who's more closely related to you. Um, but I really want to perform this redemption for you. And so let's run away together and I'll be your redeemer and we'll live happily ever after. No, there will always be the fear that they will be pursued for their transgression against the law. So Boaz doesn't do that. He operates purposefully and goes through the due process of redeeming Ruth. He has good character that way. He operates faithfully. He did what he said he would do that day. He told Ruth, you go home to Naomi, and I am going to go settle this. He operates unselfishly. He says the reason he will do this is to maintain the name of her former husband, 
and former father-in-law. He does this to provide for Ruth. He operates unselfishly. So in this morning's sermon, let's see two main points. Redemption is a legal transaction. The study of Ruth chapter 4 is helpful for that. Redemption is a legal transaction, which is important because we are legally in trouble. Number two, from the legality of it, we find a redemption that is radically transforming. What I mean by that and what I intend to explain in that, have you ever seen the accused who has been detained arrive at a trial? Maybe they arrive in transportation that's been provided for them by the state. And maybe they arrive in shackles. Maybe they arrive in orange. And then after the final verdict, there is a radical transformation. Street clothes, unchained, leaving under their own will. That's radical transformation, but it only precedes or it only follows true legal justification. We're going to see that the due process, the legal redemptive process is going to produce for a widow, homeless, foreign woman, radical change. And I'll only hint at the fullness of the radical change today, and Lord willing, we'll explain it in its entirety next week. Let's get started then with our sermon today. I will pray, and then we'll look at the first point in verses 7 and 8, which is redemption is legal transaction. Let me pray and ask the Spirit of God to use this moment. Father, we know that your desire to mature us into Christ's likeness is altogether good and loving. It is holy, right, and should be welcomed and sought after by your children. We see Christ. And we desire imitation of him in his obedience to you, in his service, in his love, in sincerity. And so, Lord, would you bless the explanation and the application of this text to produce just that fruit in us. Be praised in the time we spend submitted to the direction of your scripture in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, redemption is a legal transaction in verse seven and eight. Redemption is legal and it's cultural. This was the custom in former times. Verse seven, concerning redemption exchange to confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. The law had to be satisfied and not bypassed. The law had to be satisfied. True forgiveness, being pronounced, redeemed, required legal process, not bypass. In verse 7, the narrator in, interrupts the story to create this parenthetical comment concerning ancient legal custom. Having said his piece in verse 6, the unnamed redeemer takes off his sandal, and hands it to Boaz. This was a symbolic act declaring that he would give up his right to redeem and would give it to Boaz. For the sake of understanding 
that this letter is written to a first audience before us. You understand, of course, that sandals are the common footwear of the day. The act involved in this transaction is described as taking off the sandal. So a guy takes one of his sandals off, the guy unnamed, and hands it to Boaz. The narrator notes that this is following the ancient practice in Israel. The nonverbal gesture we see here was performed particularly in the legal acts of redeeming and exchanging. The end of verse, or the middle of verse 7. This was the custom in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. This was the law of the day. And then in verse 9, the completion of the transaction is announced and witnessed. So, um, the exchanging of a sandal, we, we might have a loose correlation to what had been the integrity of a handshake. When a handshake was a vow, we, we might say that that's the correlation. Like if you're going to give me your sandal, in our culture we might say a handshake. My word is my bond. Well, that's not always holding up the way we would hope. So now we have legal contract. And that legal contract is significant, but it has to be found in order to be valid, right? If you say, well, you and I had a contract. I was going to provide this service, and you were going to pay this money. And that person might say, well, where's said contract? Well, I don't know. I lost it. Well, then if you can't produce the agreement in its terms, then I don't think we have an agreement anymore. So not only was it a legal process, but the legal process had to be validated. So in verse, seven, or verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and the inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers or from the gate of their native place or their home. You are witnesses this day. It was important that the people present say, yes, in fact, we have record, we stand as record that this has been done. With the transfer of the sandal, the final legal gesture, the official court stands and produces its verdict. Boaz makes this statement, it's twofold. He says, as he turns to the crowd and to the elders that are assembled, you remember there were 10 elders? And then the passers-by at the city gate, they gather and say, what's, what's going on? What judgment is happening? And Boaz makes a statement to this crowd that is twofold. First is he summarizes his own role in legal transaction. He says, you attest, you witness, I have done this. This is now legal. It is right and good. This is what I've accomplished. First, he states in verse 9, the estate of Elimelech has been redeemed. And then in verse 10, the person of Ruth has been redeemed. Now, as you read this account, do you ever just answer honestly, maybe transparently, do you ever feel like, well, is Ruth like a tag on to the property? And a, a 
casual reading of this legal transaction might look that way. Like, oh, I, I get the field. I, I'll take Ruth too. And, and, and that might lean into what is sometimes a, a, an accusation against biblical culture that women especially are degraded and undervalued. But that's not the case here. He expresses his legal transaction, but then he explains his motive. This is important. He says in these verses why he eagerly fulfills the redemption. He mentions the estate of Elimelech first because his right to Ruth is contingent upon gaining the rights to the property. She's linked to the provision that comes from the property. So he's not saying, I really want to redeem the property, and I guess if Ruth has to come along with it, so be it. It might look that way because of the way Boaz explained it to the unnamed redeemer. He's like, you want, you want to buy property? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll buy property. But she comes with it. Now, Boaz is clearly trying to deter the unnamed redeemer as he is eager to be the redeemer. And so it might look like the order of things communicates the value of things, but that's not the case. The land is a sort of, we don't do this much anymore in our culture because we have life insurance policies. A dowry, a provision for a widow. And for Naomi and for Ruth, the land meant provision. And so to take the land and not the widows is to take the provision and leave them even more destitute than they had been. So he says, I am taking the land because I will redeem and provide for Ruth. In Boaz's explanation of his motive, we find, we find again, a display of certain character, which is worth noting. First, he says his goal is to care for the name, the family tree of the dead, Ruth's husband. He says, secondly, it is to prevent that name from being cut off from his brother's. Third, he says, it is his goal to prevent the name from being cut off from the gate of his place, which we probably understand. The gate is the place where legal issues are handled, the place where uh, civil issues are handled, the place where a person has representation in what will happen in the community. And Boaz says, I don't intend for her family to be lost from city proceedings. He is to be present with a descendant. Elimelech and Malon will have the right of representation in the gathering of town council. Boaz is not saying, hey, this field's going to make me rich. Hey, this woman who we know from her name is, uh, and her testimony is an admirable woman. She's a virtuous woman. But he doesn't say, wow, you know, Ruth is really hot and that land produces, you know, great crops. This is, everything's coming up Boaz today. That's not what he says. He says, I am thinking about my kinsmen, these, these, these family members, their widows and this provision. 
So at this point, Mr. So-and-so, I don't know his name, the other redeemer, disappears without a name. But what we've just read is that Boaz intends to be used to provide security for Malon and Elimelech's name from here and forward. This legal transaction, this justification, there are ways we might think could be less risky. I mean, what if if Boaz goes to the gate and the other redeemer goes, yeah, sure. Now, there's nothing said about the other redeemer's character. We would only assume poor character. What we don't have to assume is the good quality of Boaz. It's spelled out numerous times. Naomi attests to it. She says, oh, this guy has a great reputation. He'll do what's right. What if the other guy says, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll take all this stuff. Really want the land, but I'll mistreat the woman the land is meant to provide for. Seems risky. What if it doesn't work out? And maybe, just maybe, Boaz would think of another way. Let's run away together, like I said before. Um, We don't have to do this whole exchange. We'll claim we didn't know about the other Redeemer. And there could be some underhanded, non-legal means that could be taken, or illegal means that could be taken, but that won't produce redemption. Redemption won't be subjective. Redemption isn't something that you can define on your own terms. Well, I I remember there being a contract, and I, I have good memory. I remember what it said. That won't work. And when it comes to redemption, it makes me think about Christ's justification of me. Christ's justification of sinners. The reality is, legal justification is imperative for three reasons. Our world is flooded in guilt, real guilt, real despair and need. There is nothing in all of the world that comes close to providing the sort of conclusion of that guilt as there is in justification. There's nothing. Let me just let me just propose one attempt. One attempt to eradicate. I uh, we, the elders got together. We we had a chance to hear a speaker preach on justification, and, and it was really helpful to think through the way our culture is trying to produce a guiltlessness without the justification of Jesus Christ. One, I, I only have time to share with you one. One is eradicate the idea of a higher power. If we eliminate the idea that there is a holy being who will judge us, then guilt will go away. Did that work? Didn't work. Many could argue it's had the opposite effect. So guilt remains. And the only provision for eradicating that real guilt is to hear from your judge You're forgiven at my expense. Justification, if misunderstood, 
causes confusion about the whole plot of human history. If we don't understand the, the holiness, the orderness, the legality of our redemption in justification, the whole plot of human history, like what created humanity is about, is not rightly understood. So this shadow of that greater reality is really helpful. Boaz doesn't try to skirt the law. He doesn't try to get around it, bypass the law. He goes right in through the law, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, I'm abolishing that. He says the opposite, doesn't he? He said, I'm not going to. Not a part of it will pass away. I've not come to, re- to eradicate it. I've come to show you my fulfillment of it. I will perfectly keep it in your place as a substitute for you. And he does just that. He does not bypass the law. And so therefore, this text about this odd cultural legal process of redemption is a helpful reminder to us of Christ. So Boaz is worth noting, but I can't help but let my mind go to Christ's accomplishment of redemption for us. Let me talk about the second portion of this paragraph. That is our second point. Redemption is transforming. The attempt to remove guilt by just saying, hey, let's pretend like a righteous judge doesn't exist. Then we won't feel bad about our offenses. That's not changing anything. That's not changing anything. But real, right redemption makes radical difference. It makes radical difference. We're going to see it here in this account, in this narrative. Let's look at verse 11. Then, so after Boaz makes his speech, I've I've gone through the law. You all are witnesses to it. This is the reason I've done it. Then, verse 11, all the people who were at the gate of the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make like rape. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring of the Lord, or the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay. There is a bunch of Old Testament information there. Like there are some words that pop off the page if you're at that point where you have a pretty good grasp on Old Testament history and uh, genealogy and events and records, there is some stuff in there like Rachel and Leah. Whoa. You just prayed that the Moabitess will be like Rachel and Leah? The, the matriarchs of what is the house of Israel? Wow. I'm getting ahead of myself. I got excited. The first thing the people say is yes. The problem is there's no Hebrew word for yes. That seems weird, doesn't it? There is only that they can repeat what he had asked them. He said, hey, you are witnesses. All they say back is, we are witnesses. That's their answer to his question. They break out into benediction then to bless Boaz for his action. Why does this crowd at Bethlehem get so excited about what Boaz is doing? Like this this act of 
of redeeming this widow, this being the kinsman redeemer, this Leverite provision. Why, why did the people in Bethlehem get so excited about it? There's a reason. <laughs> Those people are there because someone else did it. The benediction that they break out into, this praise, they're like, we pray this way and we expect these things and we hope this blessing, it comes in three parts. The first part is they pray for fertility. They say, the woman who's coming into your house, they're, they're referring to the custom. Boaz is going to take his new wife home to, her, to his house and the marriage will be consummated. He will bring her into the home ceremonially. They pray for the woman who's coming into your house. Who's the woman? Oh, right. A Moabite. Who, I don't have time to go into all the gory details, but there's not a, there's not a great relationship between Israel and Moab. They pray for a house to be built. And they invoke the names of Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs of the house of Israel. The fact that they pray this makes good sense, doesn't it? Psalm 127, unless the Lord is the one who builds the house, all of our labor is in vain. That's biblical wisdom. And so they pray, may God build Israel through this Leverite redemption the way he did through Rachel and Leah? The second part of this blessing, of this benediction, is directed at Boaz. And it comes in two parts. They say first, may you act worthily in Ephrathah. May you be renowned in Bethlehem. Would you please not forget that the gate of the city we're talking about is the city of Bethlehem? Matters a lot in what comes next. The third part of their blessing is found in verse 12. Those witnesses, those elders, prayed that Boaz's house would become like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Genesis 38. Oh boy. This is going to get really interesting. Boaz's family line exists because someone performed the kinsman redemption, the Leverite vow. Now, not at first, not well. If you go to Genesis chapter 38, you would find the other account of Leverite obligation, the obligation of a, a, a family member to marry a widow. That's Leverite, in case you weren't here when we covered that part. The Leverite obligation is recorded there in Genesis 38. It involved a widow by the name of Tamar, whose husband, Ur, had died without producing an heir. Tamar goes to his brother, whose name is Onen, and asks him to fulfill his God-given legal requirement, and he refuses. Tamar then pretends to be a prostitute and tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into intercourse with her. She conceives 
and bears sons, Perez and Zerah. Perez becomes the ancestor of Boaz. So when Boaz steps up that day and says, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to redeem this. The people of Judah went, yes! That's something we've seen before. And we'll celebrate that. And oh, and you're redeeming a foreign woman? All right. We'll take that too. And through this redemption, the Lord is going to build the house of Israel. And if the Lord wills, maybe even to the extent he did through Rachel and Leah. Little did the crowd know the prophetic nature of what they said that day at the gate of the city of Bethlehem. It's amazing. It is, it is staggering. The things that had happened before this moment and the things that are going to come after this moment, and we read this little story, and God's providence is in every sentence of a little story about a widow who's being taken care of. This crowd gathers and inspired by the Holy Spirit, they join in spontaneous, unanimous pronouncing of blessing. They had come as witnesses. They left as prophets. Had they lived long enough and been around long enough to see the fulfillment of what they prayed for, they would have observed the establishment of a name and a house greater than Perez. The house of David a name which is preserved to this day on the flag of the nation of Israel. God takes out of what Naomi says is nothingness. Nothingness. And puts practically a name on the flag of Israel. From a woman who walks home on a dusty road without a husband or sons. Just a young lady who says, I'm with you. That is a wonderful, beautiful God thing. This is our God. As I read this, I thought about nameless, homeless, Hopeless, Ruth, and Naomi. I thought about the nation Israel. The prophets describe an interaction where God says, I found you hopeless, abandoned, along the side of the road like a baby who had been left for dead. And I redeemed you, I ransomed you. And still to this day, the name Israel invokes for us, an understanding of what it means to be covenant people of God. I think about us. Maybe it's in Corinthians when Paul says, look around. I believe it's Corinthians where he says, look around. See how that not many prominent people, like, like not many prestigious people, not many wealthy people, not many wise. Look around. I have redeemed from 
nothingness, from smallness, for my name's sake, a people. And this is just a beautiful illustration of God doing wonderful things for his glory. Redemption is complete when it's legally correct, when it's right. Redemption, when it is legally right, when justification has been pronounced, produces radical change. So Christian, to be taken from hopelessness, homelessness, and redeemed by the God of heaven and earth is going to produce radical change. Ruth. Cleaning up barley from the corners of the field becomes a forerunner, a, a parent to the king of Israel. And you know enough of the story to know you can't stop with that celebration. Because from the king, and I'm going to say this next week, I'm going to get into the Davidic covenant next week. From the king, lowercase k, comes the uppercase k. God sees fit to make his abilities great by doing that through hopeless, homeless widow. As the story unfolds, <clears throat> we continue to learn things about God. And we remember here that God works through what we might assume to be insignificant people. Naomi and Ruth. I mean, who are they? Who are they that God would show such favor to them? The unnamed redeemer. He doesn't even have a name. Yet his actions, taken off the sandal, handing it to Boaz, makes the whole thing legal and right and good and even helps us see the legal rightness of our justification. And then there's this crowd. Just people on a Thursday morning. Did you know it was Thursday? Uh, on a Thursday morning, just gathering and saying, wow, this is great redemption. We've seen this before. The people of Judah are, are kind of here because this has happened with Perez. He's, he's the forefather of our people. And now you're doing this again. This is great. May the Lord bless and build Israel the way he did even through Rachel and Leah. And they had no idea insignificant people saying things they could only understand in a finite way, in a brief moment, saying things that we sit here thousands of years later and go, oh, do you know what you just said? And God, all the while, using people who don't seem like they're going to change the world, but do. I would encourage you Know the holy provision, holy, H-O-L-Y, provision of redemption. Our redemption is full and it's legal in Christ. Therefore, it produces radical change. What had been strangers and aliens from the covenant of promise become heirs 
if what had been my destiny was to remain outside of the covenant of promise, to live out all of my days according to the will of my father, the devil, the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience, and to end those days and hear that my eternal judgment was separation from God, uh, was, was eternal punishment apart from God's blessing, if that had been my destiny, then it is radically changed when I become an heir according to promise, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Redemption, the redemption we have in Jesus is legal, doesn't bypass the law. Therefore, it is altogether upright and then produces radical change. And mine, as a co-heir together with Christ, is to live for eternity in glory. And the blessing of my God, my Creator, my Heavenly Father, and to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to be returned and redeemed to Eden again delight in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are you are I am so many things become inexplainable in human terms You work everything according to the counsel of your will. And we see in, in one morning a legal interaction between two guys at a gate in a little town called Bethlehem. And we see thousands of years of redemptive history erupt. Lord, as we continue and conclude this, make our hearts to be full of delight as we see you working redemption on our account. As we think, Lord willing, next time about this king these people prayed would build the house of Israel. And the covenant you made with that king, David. And how we now have in that covenant a Lord, a Redeemer, who sits forever on the throne. And so all the songs we sing this morning about how our hope is bound to him. We can sing with joy because we see in this small story that you are producing faith that cannot be disappointed when that faith is in Christ. So we praise you. We stand again in awe for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that you alone reign in every way. And you are altogether good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.